episode 237 of the Anarchist News Podcast, a digest and or conversations on anarchist activity, ideas, and comments from the previous week on anarchistnews.org. What's new this week? Dozens of comrades raided from roundrobin.info, translated by Act for Freedom Now. Quote, at 4 a.m. in the morning of November 11th, 2021, the Ross Carabinieri Special Operations raided the homes of dozens of comrades all over Italy on orders of the Prime Minister Comodi in an investigation set off by the usual Nobili and Bassoloni. Alfredo Cospito, in prison for having shot at Adinolfi, CEO of Ansaldo Nucleare, and for Operation Scripta Manent, was notified of yet another pretrial detention. Another comrade is under house arrest. Four more were subjected to an obligation to remain in their own area with regular signing. The main accusation is of having constituted and promoted an association with aims of terrorism, an accusation in particular revolving around the paper Vetriolo and some articles published in it, unquote. The site Round Robin is also under threat, and they express their defiance. That was dozens of comrades raided. Number two, inside the rise of anti-work. Hmm, there's no source given for this story. How did that happen? Anyway, this is not really an A news story, but it is one of the many current stories about people refusing work and what might be causing this mass rejection. The analysis is shallow, the writing is mediocre, but the facts are interesting, and the potential, in a world that is changing dramatically, mostly for the worse, could be deep. This particular story is mostly an advertisement for Reddit, so meh. That was inside the rise of anti-work. Skip this one and go to... Tang Ping from User Bugs. This is a much more interesting take on anti-work, or as it's called here, Tang Ping, which means lying flat. I'm sure that I'm pronouncing that wrong. These are some translations in process from an account that has now been deleted. Quote, Because I am not going to be performing any labor, I am able to only eat two meals a day, noodles plus eggs in the morning, rice plus vegetables and eggs in the evening. On weekends, I can go to a restaurant for chicken chops and rice if I feel like it. For me, solving the problem of food is solving everything. My monthly expenditure is controlled within 200 yuan, and I can work for one to two months a year. I hate life lived for the sake of steel and concrete and traditional family values. People shouldn't be so tired. People should pursue a simple life. So I always do things very slowly because I don't need to do things for anyone. I sometimes hide somewhere to watch and laugh at those busy people. Unquote. That was Tang Ping. Mikula Ziastok, sentenced to five years, from Anarchist Black Cross, Belarus. Quote, Ziastok was accused in participation in, quote, mass disorders, Article 342 of Criminal Code illegal activities involving flammable substances, Article 295-3, and calls for action aimed to undermine the national security, Article 361. In fact, Diastok was accused in participation in a peaceful demonstration on 23 of August 2020 in Minsk and in calls publicized through his widely read blogs to participate in protest. Bottles containing fuel without a wick, so no Molotov cocktails, were planted to his apartment by police. Mikola rejected the accusations against him and calls the case persecution for my views and my desire to tell the truth. Unquote. Announcing Fifth Estate number 410 from fifthestate.org, the annual review of books issue, this post lists the reviewers and titles reviewed, and there are some familiar names, including John Clark, Marius Mason, Martha Ecclesburg, etc. Bingzik 8 Resquatted from en.squat.net. Quote, since some days now, we, the anarcho-feminist group Amsterdam, have been residing at Ringzik 8. We have decided to expropriate this building because we think it is disgusting that houses are being kept empty for years while we are in a housing crisis. Many people are living in precarity and homelessness has doubled in the last 10 years. In previous actions, we have targeted big speculators such as Blackstone, squatted buildings in solidarity with sex workers being pushed out of our city, and against the greenwashing and promotion of colonizers and gentrification done by NV Zidik in the red light district. Today, we take an autonomous action as part of the ongoing housing demonstrations. Just marching and hoping the government will listen to us is not enough. Actually, the government listened to the demands made by housing movement and their answer has been loud and clear. No measure taken to solve the problem. But instead, they sent cops to silence us, mutilating our bodies, making blacklists, and arresting us." Unquote. 
plenty of information about why these particular building owners are bad and, and how housing corporations in general are bad. Direct action, people. That was Ringdick Resquatted. End of the Akrata Project from akratabxl.wordpress.com Translated by Act for Freedom Now. A library project with space in Brussels is ending. Quote, Today, the library is closing its doors, and it is not without a touch of nostalgia that we remember all the discussions, film presentations, exhibitions, and other aperos, or solidarity meals, that took place there. At the moment of putting an end to the adventure that this space has been, we wanted to thank all those with whom we have been able to share these beautiful moments, as well as the sometimes more difficult moments. Unquote. The announcement, at least, was written by an anarchist. Long live libraries, at least until the end of books. Trial of four anarchists charged with terrorism held behind closed doors. From Belsat.eu, our weekly bad news report from Belarus. This is a short announcement about the trial of four anarchists picked up in October 2020. The judge has determined that the trial will be closed because, quote, there are no more places, unquote. Close relatives and Russian media were the only ones allowed in. Doesn't bode well, but not sure anything would. Attacks against three mobile phone towers from atake.noblogs.org, translated by Creighton. Brief communique of actions claimed by Akrates, coordinated associations for the anti-tech revolt and eco-sabotage. Not just against a new aspect of society, but against this society as a whole. Chatter and Identities, from disordine.noblogs.org. A biting and sarcastic piece pointing out the idiocy of a prosecutor's argument. The revelation that anarchist material was found in anarchist houses. Quote, and not only us, it is a simple discourse which many people agree with in their heart of hearts. When at work or chatting in cafes, they exclaim that certain people, those responsible for the disgusting living conditions and exploitation, should all be killed, or that parliament should be blown up with all of them inside because it is just a den of parasites with fat cat's wages, while many outside are starving. Of course, this is often bathroom chatter dictated by an outburst of anger due to a life of misery. Whereas anarchists sometimes actually do raise their hands against those they identify as enemies. And yet, following the twisted logic of this public prosecutor's office, perhaps one day investigations will also be opened against those who do this cafe chatter. And we are sure that, during the raids, hundreds of coffee cups will be found in their homes. Proof of their criminal plan, unquote. Worth reading for the bite. Write an anarchist prisoner today. That was Chatter and Identities. Gathering Outside La Dozza Prison from InfernoUrbano.AltaVista.org A call for a gathering outside a prison in Italy. Quote, After the revolts of March 2020 in prisons all over Italy, hundreds of prisoners were put on trial for having protested in defense of their health in full COVID emergency. 50 prisoners are on trial in Bologna and 70 in Modena, right in the Santa Ana prison. Nine people were killed by screws with beatings and gunshots, but this was covered up and investigations against the prison police were soon filed away, while Modena prosecutors extended investigations on the prisoners. We are going back outside the prison to express all our solidarity with those who experience prison violence in their skin every day. Alongside anarchist prisoner Beppe and Mattia, the prisoner who a year ago told the truth about the massacre in the jail of Modena, unquote. That was gathering outside La Dozza prison. All out against the fascists. From anarchist communist Minjin, this Brisbane-based group really brings out the kami to anarcho-kami. This particular post is a guide for organizers with links to medic pages, activist right pages, social media pages, list of things to attend to, etc. This is fine information as far as it goes, in a framework of mass mobilizing which just makes some of us tired. Quote, talk to your friends, your family, and anyone else about what you want to do and get them to come along with you. The more of us there are, the easier this is going to be. Remember, we aren't just out there because we hate the far right. We are showing solidarity with healthcare workers and everyone else who is getting shafted during the pandemic. Unquote. Low bars to jump over, but it's all about building momentum for the revolution, obviously. Really, the title says it all. All out against the fascists. Does the Sibylla predict the storm? From malakota.noblogs.org. This is a, a repeat of the information in our first story for this week. Uh, it's an update about the arrests in Italy uh, and people being detained. Uh, it repeats that Alfredo Cuspido is imprisoned, that Michelle is in house arrest, that four others are required to stay in their cities and report in multiple times a week. Also, two sites, Malakota and Round Robin, are under attack. 
The story says they've been obliterated, but since they're still up, not clear what that means. This post is clear about anarchist projects existing always under threat from state forces, so there is nothing surprising here. Quote, anyone who takes it upon themselves to openly publish a newspaper such as Vetriolo, giving support and a voice to anarchist and revolutionary prisoners, is well aware that repression will take its steps with investigations laced with sensationalist tones. But this does not mean that we will complain about the lack of democratic freedoms of expression and of the press, which in fact have never existed and today even less so, unquote. The Sibylla in the title is not explained here, and a search didn't bring anything up for us. Maybe somebody else knows more and will let us know. Sledgehammer attacks against Eurobank and National Bank. From Athens Indie Media, translated by Crete. A communique of this action in solidarity with Calicidus and Mataraga by Black Trade Union. Quote, we do not stop watching the escalation of repression at all levels. Unarmed miners for a stolen car are murdered by uniformed gangs. A constant attempt to enforce laws is underway, and it is constantly producing new laws. Government slander mechanisms are mobilizing far-right mobs against even simple democratic voices. Social activists, such as Kostas K, have recently been targeted for decades in cases with charges leading to decades in prison. They take DNA by force and file it, as always in the beginning, from those who resist, and then they will proceed to everyone. And on November 25 is again the trial of members of Rubicon, Calacidus and Mataraga, in a case that has become emblematic for two reasons. Firstly, because we officially heard in a courtroom a case of the police setting up a case against militants. And secondly, despite the fact that something like this was heard, no leaf shook. It went like that, unquote. That was Sledgehammer Attacks. Audio and video readings from All Things Are Nothing to Me from immediatismpodcast.com. Quote, the entire book, All Things Are Nothing to Me, The Unique Philosophy of Max Stirner by Jacob Blumenfeld, is read across these 15 episodes from Immediatism. The episodes are labeled so as to serve as a topical resource. Each is 30 or fewer minutes long and starts with a brief intro recapping the previous episode. For a shorter sample of Jacob Blumenfeld's analysis, enjoy just the final two episodes which stand on their own as one essay on Stirner, Marx, and communism, unquote. Mail Moon, Anarchist Views from Vietnam, from the Final Straw Radio, an hour and 15 minutes. Quote, Mail Moon is an anarchist collective working to make anarchist materials and ideas more accessible to a Vietnamese audience, together with providing an analysis of social struggles from a Vietnamese anarchist lens. Over the next hour, you'll hear three collective members, Mai, Will, and Dung, share their critiques of leftist misrepresentations of the Vietnamese state as socialist, lasting impacts of imperialism and war on populations of Vietnam, the centering U.S. imaginaries of Vietnam, the struggles of working class people in general, and queer folks and sex workers in particular in Vietnam, nationalism promoted by the government and other topics, unquote. Some sophisticated theory here was in a pro-revolutionary under- understanding. The modding of the voices doesn't get in the way too much, but also there's a transcript available. One of Final Straw's more interesting interviews, in my opinion. First, ask good questions. No Sean still. Hope he's doing okay. That was Mio Mun, Anarchist Views from Vietnam. VFTT episode 2 is up from Anarchy.tube, an hour. Videos from the trash dimension is anarchist and anarchist adjacent content. This episode is a mix of deterrent advertisements, vandalism porn, artifacts like minimalist text exchanges, etc. This project is great. Looking forward to episode three. Lost Texts of Lawrence Labadee from Immediatism.com. Five episodes on Lawrence Labadee, son of the Labadee for whom the Ann Arbor Library is named. These readings are from the text Anarcho-Pessimism, the collected writings of Lawrence Labadee. Topic of the week, strangers. If it's all about who you know, what about the people you don't know? Dealing with strangers is not unique to anarchists, but the consequences of trusting someone new can hold special weight. Common practices such as security culture and the affinity group shield us from unfamiliar people in our closed circles. Pair this with a distrust of technocrats and the rejection of community, and all signs point towards the fact that hell is in fact other people. But is it that simple? How do you think we should treat folks we are not familiar with? 
those who support the idea of a market might say that's the ideal framework, trading with one another for mutual benefit. Others might feel everyone should be treated as a friend and given what can be given. Another option is to build and rely on community and keep interactions with strangers to a minimum. I have also seen some who are in favor of treating all strangers as enemies, stealing from them when possible. What do we do if we want to trade and the strangers want to steal from us? Or if we don't want to deal with strangers at all, but they force interaction? Controlling how strangers interact is one of the main things used to justify the state. We know that it's nonsense, but can you explain why? Throughout the pandemic, it's been more challenging to meet new anarchists face to face. What new old ideas have you tried to meet new anarchist friends with during the pandemic and what have been your successes failures? Do you have a soft slash hard rule about how long do you know someone new before giving them the key to the free bin? How do we help strangers who are interests in anarchist ideas participate in the most beautiful idea? What does the relationship of specialists like doctors and psychologists who are intimately trusted as strangers look like for anarchists? Greetings, everyone. Here we have a special guest, uh, Babylon, who sent us this great uh, topic of the week. And then some people from the collective added some questions and some other things to think about. So let's get right into it. Um, but I was going to ask you two things. First, I was going to say that it's funny because we are, in fact, uh, both of us in one way or another, more strangers than not. So this conversation maybe is an example of how we deal with strangers, more or less. And I was going to ask, I think that maybe you had a very specific idea when you sent this topic that obviously you try to make more broader and more abstract so that it's more general and can be discussed in more let's say contexts but uh, what were you thinking about in specific when you wrote this um so i was thinking about basically for statists the state substitutes you know the state is how they deal with strangers if there's a problem you know if, if there's not a problem then you know who cares it's we, we can deal with them just fine but if a stranger is possibly going to commit violence against you is possibly going to steal or break your stuff or looks like they are in distress most people will call the cops and I can understand the instinct to get armed men involved on your behalf if the stranger is about to do you harm, um, and that you know that becomes trickier. That's where anarchists have to go. Well, what do we do about conflicts? How do we figure out these things? Um, but there is also this automatic reaction by people who trust the state to call the cops when they see somebody in trouble, when they see somebody who is intoxicated and is wandering around the road, for instance, or who has fallen down and injured themselves, or who is crazy and not capable of taking care of themselves, um, people get the state involved unless it is somebody that they actually know personally. And so that's part of what I was thinking, you know, this, this automatic instinct to get the state involved and how, how do we deal with that instead? Um, and then the other side of it that you asked actually brings the thing to my mind because I don't think you and I are strangers. I think that we've had quite a few conversations. I feel like I know you better than some people I see face to face, but there's that divide for a lot of people where somebody is still a stranger until you've actually met face to face. Whereas for me, I met um, my first wife through the internet. I met you know a lot of people that I've had really close connections to, to through the internet. And so I don't feel like that is what makes somebody a stranger as opposed to not. But it's also hard for me to figure out exactly where that line is because there are people that I have talked to, that I've interacted with, that I would still think of as strangers. And then there's other people that I would not, even though they're not necessarily close friends yet. They're not people I know well. Definitely. It's it's a uh, blurry line. You know, I mean, words can only do so much. Uh, and, you know, they're always going to be imprecise, but it's what we have at hand to to communicate but yeah i mean you're always continually getting to know people around you and uh people can surprise you even people you've known for a long time but definitely when you post the example of having to call some type of emergency service that by default is going to be a stranger that's going to come to your home you're definitely calling upon the the service of a, of a stranger to perhaps intervene in ways that 
don't serve you in the best way since they don't know your situation. They're just going to arrive there with their prejudices and and make sense of the situation once they arrive and call the shots and not necessarily to your advantage, but to their own convenience. But I was going to ask you as well, how do you relate the market aspect and the communal living aspect, which is mentioned in the topic, which is not something I would immediately think of when speaking about the topic of strangers. But of course, it, it makes sense once it's put into that whole context. Um, I think that uh, for market anarchists, it provides this neat little solution. You know, how do we deal with strangers? Well, what do we want from them? What do we want? What do they want from us? Can we trade? It's it looks neat and simple, um, but it's not as non-market anarchists will quickly point out in various different ways. But as even market anarchists have to acknowledge, you know, if this person is a stranger, you do not know that they're going to deal with you fairly. Um, and you have to come into it with the intention of dealing fairly with them, or you're going to create a bad reputation for yourself. You're going to hurt your relationship with the people that you're already friends with. Um, and there is also absolutely very much that distinction between how do we deal with strangers and how do we deal with acquaintances? How do we deal with those that we know and that we are familiar with, but that we're not necessarily friends with? We don't necessarily want to help them just out of kindness or friendship, um, but we do know them. You know, We know whether or not we can trust them. We know how they are likely to react. And Graber, David Graber, comes to me when I'm thinking about this kind of thing because he's talked quite a bit about how the capitalist fairy tale that the market arose from barter, that money started out as barter, is nonsense. And people did not barter with people that they knew prior to money. However, they still did barter with strangers, and that was part of why barter got this reputation as a kind of a shady thing, because it was something people did with strangers, and it was something where you were more likely to get ripped off than you were with people that you knew and trusted, where you didn't barter, you simply gave each other gifts. I can definitely, um, um, how do I say this, uh, I don't have the means to go back in time and see how it all started. I mean, but uh, speculating is free and, and, and bullshitting is, is very easy. So I'm, I'm going to try to imagine and I can see how it would be convenient to, to have uh, this trade relationships with strangers in a way because um, when you don't know someone, uh, their motivations might be unclear, but when there's like a profit motive or when there's like a trade motive, it all becomes very clear and transparent what their interests are. And mm -hmm. when you're operating on those terms, it's easier to to come to to agreements to that are to mutual benefit because you know what they want and you know what you want versus. Um, I don't know, a stranger coming with gifts in some cultures that might not be much, but in other cultures it might be seen with suspicion. Um, mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to like pretend to be an anthropologist. So I'm just going to, to like, you know, bring it to, to everyday life. There's a lot of distrust of, of strangers and what is mentioned in the, in the topic now with the whole quarantine, even more so, you know, strangers, uh, can harm you not not only because of what they may want to do to you, but also as being a vector for disease. So people are screening people with the. I mean, did you get your vaccines? Uh, are you sick? You're you're wearing wearing a mask, or I don't know where to go from that. But well, I know that the masks actually for me create a a real simple line. If somebody is not wearing a mask and I don't know their name, I automatically do not trust them. I am wearing a mask if I am around strangers. If strangers are not wearing a mask around me, then they are automatically untrustworthy. I feel that they're not willing to take that step to protect my health. And probably they believe different things about the disease than I do, but it doesn't really matter because I see them as inconsiderate of me and of my worldview. And so it makes this very simple, like if we are wearing masks, we are probably strangers. Um, you know, and we can we can interact with strangers, hopefully in a positive way. If we're not wearing masks, we are either friends enough that, you know, I, I trust you with your with my air. You, you know, I trust your breath on me or you are somebody that I want to stay at least six feet away from and probably not interact with at all. So for me, it, it makes interactions with strangers a little bit simpler because it's a filter. Yeah, I mean, just trying to, to like link all the different pieces of the topic. What I'm thinking now is 
um, you know, one of the comments mentions that this being strangers is a gap that is an obstruction to certain types of relationships or activities that people desire to do. And some people w would not think it as, as that. They would say that, you know, strangers is a is a fact of the world and, and, and you deal with strangers one way, you deal with people you know some other way. But when you want to bridge that gap with strangers... Uh, What ways have you found have worked for you in the past? Well, one of the things that I saw somebody mention in the comments was how quickly bonds form when you are doing um, direct action and being involved in protests. Anything like that that is intense, where there's a risk, you know, where you are responsible for each other, it both requires and creates trust. You know, the, the minute that you have this guy that has just warned you that the cops are over there or that, you know, has kept you from getting kettled, that kind of thing, even if you don't know his name, he's not a stranger in the same way that somebody else is because he has he has done a thing to benefit you and he's done a thing that is significant. Um, and so that can very quickly take away that, um, that distance. And as was also mentioned, that can be a bad thing because undercover cops can use that kind of thing. Infiltrators can use that kind of thing. Um, like black brown alliance type fascists can use that kind of thing. And you can feel this bond with them. You don't think of them as strangers because they have done you a favor. Um, but they can do those kind of things fairly easily and kind of get inside your trust bubble. And so that makes it that much more complicated. Um, as far as like actual long-term relationships though, which I think is a, is a better way to do it. If, if it's an option, simply talking to each other, you know, once you know what, like all of those little things that they don't really matter, but they do in getting to know somebody. Once you know what kind of weather they like, once you know what their favorite color is or, you know, how they take their coffee. All of these little details build up to actually knowing somebody. Um, and if you know all of those things about them, and then it turns out that you're mistaken about something else, that your trust is betrayed in some small way, it is unlikely to be as catastrophic as if all you know is that they saved you from the cops, and then it turns out that they are, in fact, a cop. Yeah, definitely. That commenter, uh, the username was uh, Lumpy. Uh, They mentioned a term called uh, trauma bonding, and that can certainly mm -hmm. send some some hormones or whatever that could help feel closer to a person. But at the same time, in those contexts, there's a lot of paranoia, and that's not necessarily also conducive to the type of conversations that could turn intimate and people get to know each other more deeply. And like you said, that's that takes place during a long period of time. And something that's also mentioned in the comment section and that's related to this way of getting to know people, it's different gatherings and events. Uh, they mentioned book fairs. And recently in the in the A News, uh, there, there has been some articles about people being persecuted immediately for, you know, they, they were trying to nail them, uh, pin some charges on them, and, and then they raided their houses and found some literature and used that as a as an aggravant for the case and used that to pin them down. So I mean people will be paranoid even maybe to to talk about these things or to go to these events. But at the same time, you know, there, there's no way around it. If you want to meet people and and have affinity or whatever or, or try to be surrounded by people that you know and trust you have to take those steps to go outwards and reach out and whatever but yeah how, how i don't i don't know i don't know if I, to post it as a question but it certainly is a challenge to overcome the distrust and the the paranoia i don't know part of that you were talking about the book fairs and that you know, that falls back to what I'm saying is a more natural, probably better way to actually get to know people. You know, if you know what books they like and you have conversations with them about books, you can kind of get a feeling for them. But then also with the paranoia, um, you would think that that would work as a counter to the trauma bonding. You know, you're in this dangerous situation and so you don't trust the people around you. Um, and it certainly can, but it can also act to reinforce it. Um, because when one person in that situation calls out somebody else, if you've had your own feelings about them, you know, you're going to feel bonded to that person. You're going to feel more trust for this person that has called out this potential interloper, this potential undercover cop, this potential fascist, and so on and so forth. The problem is it is quite possible that they will use that as a tool to, you know, to get in tighter with you. And it's it's very hard to tune your paranoia properly so that it actually protects you rather than making you weaker. If you come into the situation paranoid without being paranoid in the right way, you're going to end up 
mistrusting people that you should be trusting, and you're also going to end up trusting people that you shouldn't. So it ends up being this this messy thing when you come into it because you'll trauma bond with strangers because that stranger has pointed out that this other stranger is not your friend, and it turns out that other stranger maybe could have been your friend, and the one that pointed it out is not. Wow, it gets complicated really quickly. <laughs> so yeah, 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 those are interactions uh, that could happen. It's very interesting. So right now, comparing these two, um, you could say meeting points or yeah, or gatherings. Uh, you have these mass protests or riots or whatever, and then you have the book fair. And out of the two, the book fair is, is perhaps more conducive to to meeting people and getting to know them. And I would now compare book fairs with different mutual aid efforts and you could have some food drives or food sharing programs you have your um you know different programs set in pray uh, in place the the same com another commenter who username is alan mentions community kitchens soup kitchens whatever well in my experience these types of things uh if you stick with them in the long run then Perhaps you can get to know people better. But if in the short run, uh, for volunteers that come in and out, it's not so much like a good way to meet people because you're always busy with some task at hand and people come in from different places with different motivations, like in the first mass demo context we mentioned. And it, there's less trauma bonding because it's, you know, lower stakes in the sense of, you know, less risk, less paranoia. But at the same time, You know, you come in, you come out, you do what you were going to do and and maybe not much interaction beyond helping out, serving. And that is 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 going in between the people at any given time. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't um, spent time volunteering as part of those things. I know I've eaten food provided by Food Not Bombs a few times, um, as well as some other like less political uh, food aid organizations um, like uh, Bread and Roses and whatnot. And I know that for me as a client of that, it gave me an opportunity to bond. Being there and interacting with the other people, simply sharing a meal is a bonding experience. And so that, you know, that gave me a chance to chat with some folks in a way that was less pressure. Um, with Food Not Bombs, it was actually at a protest that this was happening. So it was that same, you know, that same, like there, there was the possibility of trauma bonding, but we were in a safe space. We weren't in danger of being attacked by the cops. And so that wasn't coming up in the same way. It works in my head that volunteering should be a great way to bond, but it, it sounds like sometimes it's not. And part of that, I think, may have to do simply with the workload. And you don't, you know, you don't really want to push the volunteers that hard because they're not getting paid. They're not getting anything out of it except that feeling of fulfillment, you know, knowing that they're doing a good thing. And so, in my opinion, it's best to underwork them so that they have a chance to kind of chill and hang out and do that bonding because that is part of the point for them. Um, but I think that the people that organize these things a lot of times will have really grand visions. And that's part of how you get volunteers is being like, look at all of this huge difference we can make. And so people are like, oh, I can make this huge difference. But it's often better to make a small difference and not burn your people out and give them a chance to bond and build affinity groups. Because I think that's Probably how you're going to do best when you go into those protest spaces is if you've got people that you know you can trust, you know, and then you can help screen each other. You know, you can be like, well, look, this new friend that you made, you know, we don't really know anything about them. And I'm not saying that they're a bad person, but maybe you shouldn't trust them with your real name and your phone number and so on and so forth. Yeah. And moving on to another uh, question from the topic that is, uh, you know, it really makes me scratch my head. And, you know, about trusting strangers with uh, your most intimate details. And here it mentions uh, psychologists. And I've never gone to one or, or used those services. But I imagine it must be, I don't know how to say this, a bit uncomfortable to just ring up any random person and then share them your most intimate uh, problems and stuff. So, I mean, for most people, it's a no-brainer. They're okay using this confessional model. I don't know... Uh, To strangers, uh, even priests in some religion, just going up and, but I mean, in some communities, they're they're uh, are well known. I mean, they they know them well, that person or whatever. Maybe that's beside the point because uh, there's sometimes some things you would rather be a stranger to people about. I don't know. So, what do you think about these different professions, which are basically strangers that get all your intimate information? Um, so I have used the services of psychologists, um, and there is definitely 
a little bit of weirdness to it because you have to trust them with intimate details or they're not going to be able to do their job. Um, for me, it's it's something that I've been dealing with for long enough that it is very much like going to the doctor for me because, you know, like sometimes I will go to the doctor and the doctor will look at parts of me that I don't show to anybody that I'm not in an intimate relationship with and the doctor is still a stranger. Um, and so with a you know, with a physical doctor, it's, it's a much more literal, you know, like, oh, this doctor is looking at my junk and that's not normally something I would let a person do. Whereas with a psychologist, you know, they're, they're looking into your brain. Um, and it is more intimate in some ways and less in others, but it's very, a, a very similar form of exposure. And that kind of harkens back to that professional market relationship. The fact that this person is getting paid, that they have of um, accreditation that they have to worry about if they misuse your information, all of that serves as a um, as a kind of a, a safety for you. You know that this person is not going to use your information in the way that a stranger might purely for entertainment. Um, on the other hand, I have known a lot of people in healthcare, and I know that those strangers do use that information for entertainment. And they don't do it in foolish ways that might risk their license. They're not going to post it online, for instance. But they absolutely will tell their friends about the things that you have told them. Because I've had friends who have told me things about things that their patients have told them. Um, and so I assume that's that's how they all work. And so you, you kind of just have to go into it knowing that you open yourself up to random strangers by doing this. But as far as the intimacy of your brain... It feels a lot less exposing to share those things with a stranger than it does with an acquaintance. Like you have the close friends that you trust to know these kind of things. And then you have just the people that you know that you are absolutely not going to tell these things. Um, and for me, the parallel is that I have told people things online and people have told me things online that I would not tell somebody face to face unless I was unless I really trusted them. And these people aren't professionals. I know that there is no you know code of ethics that is binding them to keep them from sharing this information. They probably will. But they do not know me and they do not know my friends. So I know that it's not going to come back to me. I know that, you know, my mom isn't going to talk to me about this thing that I talked to some random stranger about online. And so the fact that it's a stranger makes it safer and makes it easier in its own way because they are not connected to you. Um, and so that that very much helps both with psychologists and then for those of us that can't afford psychologists, which often I am, um, simply telling these things, simply confessing these things to somebody who can give you feedback helps. And that's something that we will rely on strangers, usually on the internet for, because we know that they're far away. We know that they are not connected to us. It's not going to come back to us and change the opinions of our friends or our family. It's not going to cause us mockery from anybody whose opinion we actually care about. Yeah, this this is like uh, two, you could say, recurring themes or aspects of this conversation. One is trust And the other is uh, convenience. I mean, another term is uh, transparency as well. What I'm going to like say now is obviously, uh, okay, so you, you want to get to know someone to, to know if you can trust them. But at the same time, like you mentioned, sometimes it's more convenient to have someone that is not, like you said, tied to your social circles that doesn't know a person that you know or, or know someone that knows someone that's going to get back at, to you. And... You know, that convenience of having strangers is something, I don't know, it's weird because with the internet, you know, how people have like thousand internet friends and people get famous and and stuff like that. It's almost like for some people, it's tough to find strangers because so many people feel like they know you. That's a problem for a really small uh, number of people that that have that problem, but Uh, that's also like a, a small town problem as well, where everyone that you could possibly talk to in real life it is someone that knows you some in some way or knows your family. And then that reminds me of the topic of gossip, how people can know you without you even knowing because that's what reputation is when your reputation precedes you because people are, are already talking about you. And like you said, some professions like psychologists, but also lawyers, uh, really have some intimate and detailed information about their clients, which they do share for fun, obviously, with everyone. <laughs> and that's a fact of life. And it's like a balance of, you know, you can't really protect yourself or be the perfect anonymous person in real life or in the Internet So. At a certain point, it's a matter of embracing who you are and not being 
afraid of of people getting to know you with your warts and all. Because, I mean, people who hide things, uh, a lot of things usually, I don't know, maybe it's not the best types of things. So, I mean, if if you're self-satisfied, I don't know how to say this, it's, it's, it's just so incongruent, but maybe if you don't feel bad in the worst case scenario, if everyone knows the whole truth, then maybe uh, you're doing it right or not. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, um, I mean, it's part of it though is, so there's, there's two parts of why you don't want people to know things about you. One is because you are ashamed of the thing and you're talking about, you know, kind of dealing with that shame, making it so that you accept who you are. And so you're okay with people knowing who you are. But then there's the other one, which is true for a lot of anarchists, which is where you are okay with who you are, but those people who might know are not where you have beliefs or attitudes or behaviors that are not um, things that they are okay with. And even though you're okay with them, even though you're proud of them, and you may be willing to argue to justify them with people who do not know you with people where, you know, with strangers, where it doesn't matter that they know that you engage in these behaviors, you're not willing to have those conversations with your friends or family because it may simply alienate them. And you would rather that they just don't know that you, I don't know, light banks on fire, for instance, or shoplift, or I don't know, some of the many other things that anarchists commonly do that are not accepted by the general population. Yeah, there's the aspect of persecution and the aspect of shame. And just to bring it back to the example of the calling the cops and whatever and people being strangers and no i just thought of of racism because um you know when when someone let's say they're in the quote-unquote wrong neighborhood and that could be a different neighborhood depending on who you are uh and how people perceive you and you know you could be surrounded by strangers who have an idea uh, about you or that you think have an idea about you and you might feel unsafe and on, unless you get to know someone and someone approaches you, you're going to perhaps expect the worst because of that context of, of culture. And it plays out differently in different parts of the world. But I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing to discuss, but I don't think that particularly, you know, there's like a a big takeaway or, or, or a distinctive should or shouldn't that comes from our uh, camp, so to speak. Is there anything particular or different that we would have to offer uh, with regards to that issue that hasn't been said by other people or other thinkers? I think the most basic one, and I mean, you know, like this is one that's that's kind of obvious to anarchists, but we don't always think of it is don't call the cops on strangers. <laughs> don't call the cops on your friends and don't call the cops on strangers either. And, you know, I mean, that's that's automatic to anarchists that have examined their own beliefs and that realize that calling the cops is always a bad thing. But I have seen, you know, in the chat rooms, I've seen people talking about how, oh, yeah, no, it's fine to call the cops on fascists. And it's really easy to assume that a stranger is a fascist. And yeah, like once you start justifying those kind of things, you know, like the, the other thing that I saw was somebody said, um, obviously, as anarchists, all we can do with strangers is not oppress them and not be oppressed by them. And I feel like it's much more complicated than that. That's part of why we're not just getting this simple takeaway, because you do not know what is oppression to somebody until you know them. You do not know what, you know, what might happen to them that they're going to take as a an affront upon them, what they're going to take as a threat, what they're going to take as hostile action that's that's going to hurt them. Um, and it means that when we are interacting with strangers, it can be difficult to not oppress them without actually interacting with them and making them less of strangers. Yes. Upon a brief examination, what becomes clear is that there is no guide to being human, you know, like human interaction. Like there's no philosophy that's going to tell you what's appropriate in every context for every person. And, you know, the problem of strangers with uh, 7.5 whatever billion people on this planet is not something that's even I would say to be looked as a problem to be solved. It's just uh, the landscape and the reality of the thing. And I think it extends uh, obviously beyond the uh, anthropocentric vision of, of people. You know, you can meet species that are strangers to you, uh, especially if you don't know much about, for example, plants and you encounter a plant somewhere, you don't know if it's poisonous, if it's medicinal, if it's, 
something that you can eat. And uh, with animals, you don't know if they're friendly or not. So you have to be attentive to, to the different cues, uh, body language, social cues. And, you know, different people have different aptitudes. And some people struggle with that uh, different, you know, ways of getting to know your surroundings. And, you know, that, that's what the senses are for. And, and like our whole, you know, nervous system and sensorial array of things is made so that we can get to know the world around us and ourselves. And through this feedback, it becomes in ways less strange, but it's always going to be strange because we can't, you know, get to the end of it. There's always going to be the unknown and it's just uh, an aspect of being the the stranger and uh, whatever. I don't read much Buddhism and stuff, but, you know, there's this whole thing that through knowing the world, you know yourself, and through exploring your inner self, you get to know the world, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the other, like, real basic one is, you know, the golden rule. <laughs> treat <laughs> treat them as you would like to be treated, and so, you know, if you come into that with a stranger, you're going to have a, a decent basic, you know, I mean, on the other hand, we'd all love it if a stranger came up to us and handed us, you know, like, all of their worldly belongings, and that's probably not the best thing to do, but so, I mean, I think we've kind of exhausted our initial take uh, on this topic, but just to provocate and to, and to get into the final, uh, let's say, take on this, there's mention on this topic about hostility, about enemies, and about stealing and, and such and such. And I would like to end on a brief discussion on that, because it's the more controversial aspect, and I would let's say, poke around with some ideas. Okay, so when people loot, it's in our camp, it's taken as uh, something you do, whatever, fuck it. But I mean, someone might take issue with that saying, oh, but you don't know the person you're taking from. Uh, You don't know if they have it bad or you hurt their family or whatever. And let's say some other circumstance is that, like you said, if you treat others like you would want them to treat you, but certainly it's not the case that people who have like trillions of dollars suddenly become uh, humble, uh, lower class people from handing their money out to, <laughs> to, to random strangers. So it's certainly not something that's going to happen. So, And obviously, you know, there's the whole meme of indiscriminate violence, which some people would, <laughs> would actively propose literally indiscriminate harm to strangers without even getting to know them. So I don't know, how, what's your reaction to these things? There's an important distinction there because a stranger and an enemy are different. You know your enemy, you know, you, you have some idea of who your enemy is. And so there are actions that are appropriate to be taken toward your enemy that are not necessarily appropriate to be taken toward a stranger. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that a stranger should be treated as a friend. And I also don't think a stranger should be treated as an enemy. I think it's important to put them into sort of a neutral space before you can figure out you know, whether you can trust them and how you can trust them. And obviously you can't trust your enemy, but you can trust them in certain ways. You can trust them to act in ways that you disagree with. You can trust them to try to bring you harm if they're that sort of an enemy, or you can trust them to try to bring harm to the things that you care about if they're that sort of an enemy. And so when you are putting yourself in relation to them, uh, you are their enemy. And so you have to act to bring them harm because that is the relationship that you have. Um, and if you can change that relationship, perhaps you can, but they're not going to become a stranger. You don't want to treat an enemy like a stranger, um, just as I don't think you want to treat a stranger as an enemy. But I know that a lot of people will take that approach. Like I've seen the discussions of um, crime and anarchism as a lifestyle where you know you are supporting yourself through crime and so forth. And I've seen a lot of people essentially view strangers as a resource in that sort of a situation, as people to be ripped off, as people to commit crimes against. And I think that by doing that, they are treating strangers as enemies. And that's that does not seem like the best way to do things. It I, I don't know that I would say that it's not anarchist, because all kinds of things are, but it doesn't seem wise. It doesn't seem like you're going to get the best results from that. And it doesn't seem like something that is going to make you feel very good about yourself. Yeah. And I would say that most people don't have uh, enemies as such because that relationship, like you mentioned, implies uh, a level of intimacy because, I mean, you have to 
get to know them and if you really are combating them you're uh co coming face to face in in that confrontation and learning from each other obviously in order to defeat each other or to get the winning hand but most people are not engaged in, in that type of dynamic relationship but like you said it's foolish to treat people who already see you as a resource people that want to profit from you and exploit you it would be foolish to see them as a treat them as a stranger and give them the benefit of the doubt when the the relationship that is explicit in the contract use for example if you're an employee or whatever if the relationship clearly states that they're against your best interests so it would be unwise to treat them in those cases as as a stranger as well because even if they have a friendly disposition or face their role is to to do you wrong so yeah it goes both ways in in that regard and um uh, any final thoughts one more bit on what you were saying about the the strangers as bosses strangers as enemies or enemies as bosses um in our society there is a lot of mediation and so often you are not dealing directly with your enemy you are dealing with their minions you know you have these people that have been hired or otherwise compelled to act in the interest of somebody whose interests are opposed to you and so they're you know they're not necessarily your enemy but they are working for your enemy and so they are not simply strangers they are they are minions um which i don't know i mean that's a silly word but it's a fun one um but yeah i think that that is a good note to close on that enemies are not strangers and friends are not strangers and that your strangers should probably not be treated as either friends or enemies um but somewhere sort of in between until you can figure out if they are a friend or an adversary thank you very much for this conversation so everyone take care and uh have a nice week it's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. The What's New was written by Chisel and read by Chisel and Bruno. We thank Octox and Babylon for the topic of the week, Conversation on Strangers. For the sky just to surrender And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind You find he did not leave you very much Not even laughter Like any dealer He was watching for the card that is so high and wild he'll never need to deal another. He was just some Joseph looking for...